Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome back to Pass Gas. I am your co-host, Nolan Sykes. With me today, as always, uh, is our James Pumphrey. <laughs> Hi, what is wrong with you? I don't know. <laughs> what and, is wrong and, with you? And <laughs> Joe Weber. Hey there. Hey, guys. Um, yeah. Should we just get right into it? Yeah, sure. It's going to take a while. You can't yeah. even talk today. That's a honker. This is a big boy. Episode. Welcome back to the epic conclusion of our three-part series on the Volkswagen Beetle. It's been a dark road so yeah. far, you guys. A lot of really messed up stuff. But there's a lot of peace and love in the future. So yeah. yeah, I hear that a lot of this episode is about peace and love. So I'm looking forward to it. We're gonna get there. Pass Gas Podcast. It's about cars, it's not about ports. Hey guys, welcome to the Pass Gas Podcast. If you like Pass Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out, and I really appreciate that. So thank you. All right, now for the show. When we last left off, the Volkswagen Wolfsburg factory, originally meant to make cars for the people, was building weapons of war instead. Wolfsburg was targeted by the Allies and nearly destroyed. But the war had ended. Hitler was dead. It was time. Woohoo! Yeah. It was time for the Volkswagen to live up to its name. And its name was the People's Car. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Now that the war was over, Germany was faced with the massive task of reconstructing a shattered country, including resupplying the transportation needs for the people. After the war, Germany was divided into multiple zones, the British, American, Soviet, and French sectors. Wolfsburg was situated within the British sector, and the factory was still under the British pocketbook in the years after the war. It was also under constant threat of being shut down. But once the British and American sectors merged, it became apparent that British Army engineer Major Ivan Hurst uh, would be able to secure the necessary funding to keep the factory 
afloat. The country would once again be allowed to participate within the global free market in 1947. Obviously, these policies had a direct impact on the Volkswagen factory. British officials representing the VW plant had continued to push for the permission to export during all of these changes. Every single one of their requests to export, though, had been denied. But now that Germany was allowed to enter the market, the VW plant was finally viewed as a way to ease the British expenses. And in March of 1947, the factory quotas were raised. The people's car would be allowed to be exported outside of Germany, but only to the Netherlands, Belgium, and France. The first official export of the car occurred in August that same year. A massive total of five cars were exported. And the process was a difficult one. Selling, quote, Hitler's cars to country Hitler had tried to conquer seemed kind of absurd. But it wasn't Hitler's car anymore, so anything could happen. Yay. I think they should should stop calling it Hitler's car if they want to sell it to yeah, these other countries. Probably not the best marketing. Look, this is a great car. This is Hitler's car. <laughs> <laughs> it was obvious that British Army engineer Major Ivanhurst couldn't run the plant forever. He was a military man, and while he loved his position at the plant, he had a larger job that took priority. But each time they tried to take Hurst out of the factory, chaos ensued. He ran a tight ship. Soon enough, the search for a replacement began. But for the volatile plant to return to German hands, it needed someone who had expertise when it came to running a major factory. Former Opel head Heinrich Nordoff, remember him from the last episode? Uh -huh. We mentioned him. Mm -hmm. yeah. He had been barred from working in the American business sector since he had been given an award from the Nazis a few years prior. Okay? Not a good look. Opel was controlled by GM, and Mr. Nordoff was forced out of his job due to America's, quote, no-nonsense policy on Nazi involvement after the war. You know, other than uh, hiring Nazi scientists to develop bombs and stuff. Yeah, and, like, the entire space program. Yeah. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Operation Paperclip. Look it up. Uh, when it came to looking for a factory manager, Nordoff, he made sense. He was experienced in managing factories, and since the VW plant was under British control, he was actually allowed to work there. On January 1st of 1948, Heinrich took up position as managing director of the Volkswagen plant by recommendation of Major Hurst. Upon his arrival to Wolfsburg, Nordoff noted that the factory still looked exactly like it did during the war. It was basically a pile of ruins that could somehow produce cars. So, he knew he had a lot of work to do. So he got to work. <laughs> <laughs> While he was meant to report to Hearst with each action, the roles were kind of reversed. It was obvious that Nordoff was the expert, and no one complained once he took control. The first thing Nordoff did was replace all the English signs back to German ones. Oh, that's where the bathroom is. <laughs> I have been peeing in jars for months. <laughs> Meanwhile, 1947 was a terrible year for Ferdinand Porsche. He had been moved from his original prison to the dank dungeons in Dijon. The dank dungeons yeah. in Dijon. <laughs> that sounds like your rap album name. Yeah, dank. dude. Dank dungeons. Dude, yeah. <laughs> dank dungeons. That's pretty yeah, good. Pretty good. Yeah. Anyway, remember, he had been arrested by the French police uh, for colluding with Hitler. Yeah. Hitler. Yeah. That guy. So, 
at this prison in the in Dijon, they were not even given beds. All around him, other men involved in the war were being sentenced to death in the Nuremberg trials. Uh, so at least Portia was better off than that. After 22 months, Portia and his family were released from the French prisons and declared not guilty of their crimes as the French government only tried him regarding the forced labor of French prisoners. Uh, the Portia Corporation to this day still denies the use of forced labor in their factory at the time. <sighs> just, it's much, I think it's better just to come clean about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's no way, right? There's no way that they didn't. I don't know. The rest of his record was sort of, I don't know. Six months after his arrival to the Volkswagen factory, Heinrich Nordhoff was still sleeping on the factory floor on a flimsy cot. Issues plagued the factory, especially the lack of housing. But most importantly, there wasn't really a local market for the cars. Germany was still dirt poor, and those who had the money to buy a car tended to steer clear of the word Volkswagen. Makes sense. Also, the factory was amazingly inefficient. It took workers in a reported 300 hours to build a single car. So Nordoff had to reshuffle the factory line in order to imitate the successful style of the lines in Detroit. Not only that, Nordoff's expertise allowed him to play with the budget a little bit. 1949 was the first year the factory was given a firm quota of 40,000 cars, and Nordoff's reshuffling allowed the cars to be produced over $200 under budget. Nordoff also rebuilt the factory. He figured out that having bombed out walls and ceilings kind of hurt company morale. Yeah. Makes I sense. remember when um, our office got blown up. That was like really <laughs> tough to come to work every day. Yeah, it's like, where do I plug my charger in? Yeah. There's no wall. <laughs> where are my snacks? <laughs> where are all my snacks? So uh, Heinrich had the place tidied up a little bit. Most importantly, he completely changed the entire decision-making power structure of the factory using a general manager who controlled multiple departments head-on and so on. While that's super commonplace now, this was revolutionary at this time in German history. But ultimately, the company was still controlled by the British government. And while they remained about as far out of the picture as they could, Heinrich still had to answer to them in the end. Now, if you've ever owned a mega factory or mega corporation, there's nothing that really cramps your style more than unions. Nordoff wanted to avoid as many unions and strikes as possible, so he tried something radical. He tried to give the employees what they wanted before they unionized to get it, including great benefits and a decent salary. He also unified the factory, and unlike Hearst, he was a German. Uh, Heinrich Nordoff was one of them and provided a great sense of morale to the entire building. Nordoff never said I, only we. He created the optimal environment for efficiency and a constructive work environment for the workers. Wow. Treat your employees well, and they'll mm -hmm. treat you well. Amazing. His goal was to take the one car every 300 hours and turn it into 100 cars every one hour. By early 1948, cars were being produced and sold by the Volkswagen plant under Nordoff's management. The only issue now was what to do with Fordinand Porsche. Good question. Fordinand. Fordinand. <laughs> yeah. Fordlandia Porsche. <laughs> Porsche was released from prison, and it was time to make an agreement with Volkswagen. It was his design and his car after all, you know, except for all that stuff he kind of stole from Josef Gans that we discussed in the first episode. Is that how you pronounce it? Josef? Josef. I would imagine so. Yeah, probably. All right. Checks out. <laughs> Ferdinand Porsche and Heinrich Nordoff met and laid out some terms of agreement. In short, 
The agreement stated that Porsche would not accept any contracts from any company that posed any competition to Volkswagen, and that the factory in Wolfsburg would be allowed to use Porsche's patents for free. In exchange, Porsche would receive a percent of each car produced and sold under the Volkswagen badge, and any car made by the Porsche company would be able to receive service at any Volkswagen dealership. Hmm, interesting. That's pretty cool. Now that sounded like a bargain, <laughs> especially since Porsche was just about to launch the Porsche 356 sports car, the first car ever to bear the Porsche brand name. This thing's like a predecessor to the 911. Yeah. It's a pretty huge deal. Yeah, it's a huge, huge deal. Did so I, who was developing it while he was in France? He's drew it in dirt. Possible. I mean, on the ground. Good question, Joe. Dude, I also want to remind everyone this guy's like 70 something yeah. years old. Like, I'm not doing shit <laughs> when I'm 70 years old. Oh, the ability to get service at Volkswagen dealerships meant that Porsche wouldn't have to set up his own network. And the fact that the 356 was based on the Volkswagen Beetle design meant it wouldn't be too difficult to service anyway. Now that you say that, it kind of does look like just a Beetle with a top chopped off. Mm-hmm. Very similar. It's like a smushed one. Yeah. Yeah, like someone put it he in the microwave. He made it smaller. Like he wanted. Uh. Smaller. Make it smaller. No, please make it a little smaller. Oh, no. That's not small enough. Make it a little smaller. Make it even smaller. Bite size. <laughs> 1948 was a really big year for the company and the group. <laughs> Ferdinand's corporate. I want a car so small. I can fit it in my mouth. I want to know what the car tastes like. <laughs> you okay, man? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's try that again. 1948 was a really big year for the company and Germany as a whole. Volkswagen had looked at selling the factory, but the Soviets were slowly encroaching on the territory, causing serious investors, such as Henry Ford II, a.k.a. Hey, Deuce. He always comes back. Uh, to back out of any purchasing agreements. That guy loved backing out of deals. Yeah. If you want to learn more about that, check out our multi-part series yeah. of Pass Gas on Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, the Soviets had just invaded Czechoslovakia, and no company was interested in buying a factory that appeared like it was destined to soon become part of the Soviet bloc. The lack of offers meant it was make or break time for the company. They had to prove themselves on their own as a German brand. Changing the public opinion on a Nazi-created factory was one of the most difficult challenges ahead, but it was the only route they could take. They had no other option. In 1948, there was a massive currency reform in Germany, and the Deutschmark was introduced into circulation. It seemed all at once people had money again, and they were ready to spend it. At the end of the year, production had doubled from 1,150 cars per month to 2,300 cars. And by autumn of 1948, a massive boom in the automotive sales and production brought the company out of debt. Wow. Any and all loans were suddenly able to be paid back in full, and the company was flourishing. By December of 1949, a new Volkswagen cost about 5,300 Deutschmarks and could be driven within a week of ordering. Wow, that's faster than now. Yeah, that is. By the end of the year, the Volkswagen was helping sustain a West German economy. 37,500 Volkswagens were sold in 1949. That's more than accurate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Like 30 times more. <laughs> Quote, the German population was finally on its way to being motorized. Between 1949 and 1954, every single component on the Beetle was examined and optimized. The rear window was replaced, a new gearbox installed, and everything else you can think of was made better. Uh, Volkswagen was actually one of the first companies to weld its cars, but they were still being welded by hand, which was a massive time uh, suck. Suck. <laughs> suck. With two C's. <laughs> So Nordoff opened an automatic welding shop that nearly doubled the production rates of cars per person per day. On October 13th, 1949, the plant was officially given back to Germany, and the men who helped rebuild it, such as Ivan Hurst, were ordered to leave. What? Well, I mean, they were still mil- They were technically still were military. military. Oh. So they were technically I, still, like, occupying, you know. In my head, it was, like, the Germans that were ordering them to leave. Yeah, not, mine too. And not, like, the British generals. Thanks for the help. Don't let the doorknob hit you where the good Lord split you. <laughs> uh, it was heartbreaking for them to leave as they had devoted so much time into the factory in the past three years. The same year, Porsche was finally allowed to re-enter Germany. With that, he and his family returned to their offices in Stuttgart. Family members described the excitement and joy on Porsche's face the first time he drove again on German streets and saw a Volkswagen, quote, in the wild. He couldn't believe that of the first 20 cars he saw on the road, 18 of them were Volkswagens. His car for the people was finally being driven by the people. He decided to visit the factory in Wolfsburg for the first time since the war. Porsche could barely recognize the city. It was now the home of over 25,000 people, 8,000 of them factory employees. To Porsche and everyone else, the factory was a shining example of Germany's new ability to stand on its own in the free market. And the car was proof that Germany could reinvent itself, just like the Volkswagen Type 1. Oh yeah, I should mention, the Volkswagen Beetle was actually referred to as the VW Type 1. No one really knows when the car was first referred to as the Beetle, but some people suspect it originated in England in the 1950s. Oi, that car looks like Ringo. (laughs) (laughs) Looks like the haircut on Ringo. (laughs) Uh, others think it came directly from Hitler when he claimed that the perfect car was the shape of a Beetle. Either way, the Type 1 is the Beetle, and the Type 2 is that passenger bus. Oh. Yeah. So, I let's, need that. let's go back to Ringo for a second. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Imagine being called Richard Starsky and then transforming into Ringo Starr. Well, and then you're just Ringo. like a world rock star. You know? Yeah. It's like. The Edge or Sting. Yeah, what's Ooh. the Edge's real name? Uh, like Paul Blanfort or something mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> I think his name was is like Toffee Weak Woman. <laughs> uh, David Howell Evans. Yeah, I would be the Edge if I was if I had that name. U uh, two is probably like my favorite band when I was like twelve years old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're the I, only one excited to have it. Like, oh, automatically appear on your phone. <laughs> yeah, I woke up as like, holy <laughs> I'd say U2's potentially my least favorite band. Really? Yeah. Wow. Is All it right. the music or is it the people in it? It's kind of both. Yeah. Like, they're just... Actually, I saw that documentary, Louder, the oh, guitar one. Oh, this might get loud? Yeah, this might get loud. Oh, yeah. And it actually, I actually kind of turned... I kind of hated The Edge just because he had the audacity to name himself The Edge. Yeah. Pretty cool name. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but he did seem like a pretty cool guy in that documentary. 
And for like how philanthropic Bono is, mm-hmm. how does he still come off as like a weird douche? Yeah, he just comes <laughs> off as the worst yeah. stepdad. <laughs> like you don't want to go to your friend Chris's house because his stepdad Reed is going to be there. Yeah, and that's Bono. <laughs> Even though I like, I know his yellow glasses are because he has an eye problem, but I'm still like, come on, dude. <laughs> he has an eye problem. Yeah, he wears yellow tinted glasses because he gets headaches if he uses normal glasses or something. <laughs> In your face, <laughs> idiot. Now he's eyes, dummy. Why don't you go save the world and sell a million billion records with those eyes that aren't good because you get a headache, idiot. We'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Porsche was enamored with the factory in Wolfsburg. Before leaving, he said to Heinrich, quote, only now do I have the feeling that I've done something right. Unfortunately, that trip to Wolfsburg would be his last. Not long after returning from the trip, he suffered a severe stroke and never recovered. Ferdinand Porsche died on January 30th, 1951, and was buried near his home in Zell am See. The birth of Volkswagen in Germany's darkest hour actually came to the company's advantage. The lack of previous experience meant that there were no prior company traditions that they were expected to follow. Thus, VW was able to take the best from every car company and mix it with the German philosophies of manufacturing and design. They had a clean slate. The result was a company that was entirely new and unique. As Nordoff put it, quote, It was a blessing for us. We solved our problems as we encountered them, in our own way, not by what the book told us, but usually by improvisation. <laughs> zip a zap a zap. In 1952, <laughs> Nordoff congratulated workers for being able to build 1,200 cars per day. That's a lot of freaking cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, on top of that, the company could now export their spunky little beetle outside of the country to even more places, including Sweden, Holland, Belgium, and Switzerland. 
1953, the Volkswagen Beetle accounted for nearly 23% of all new vehicle registrations. Good for them. That's nuts. That's of nuts. all over the world or what? I think just in Europe. Okay. By 1955, the company was already announcing the creation of the one millionth beetle. It was a golden beetle covered in shimmering jewels. Shimmering jewels. <laughs> so think about that. In like six or seven years, now they've made a, a million cars. Yeah. Incredible. You know what's crazy? Sorry, this is this reminded me of uh, Wheelhouse I'm writing. When they first came out with like metallic flake paint, mm-hmm. they used fish scale in it. And it took 40,000 herrings to oh, no. paint one car. What? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. This seems pretty inefficient. <laughs> yeah. How did you even think of this? <laughs> I was just smashing fish one day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I do. In Wolfsburg, Nordoff was being referred to as the king. Yo, Nordoff, you're the king, dude. Uh, the well-respected German magazine Der Spiegel titled an issue called in Heinrich Nordoff's kingdom, this guy was basically the man. Dude, I bet he f- so much. Oh, dude, that's the first thing I thought of. Do you want to take a ride in my golden beetle? <laughs> it is covered in shimmering jewels. <laughs> in the back of Nordoff's mind, there's always one market that he was struggling to get into, and that was the United States. The Volkswagen Beetle was an undeniably German car. Years earlier, in 1949, Heinrich tried his luck in the U.S. market. And on January 17th of 49, Ben Pond, the leading Volkswagen exporter, and two VW Beetles arrived in the New York Harbor aboard the MS Westerdam. When he was asked about the entire experience, Ben Pond had one thing to say. We got a lot of publicity. Oh, that sounds good. That sounds like a good... No, let me finish. (laughs) It was all bad. As it turned out, Americans were not so quick to forget the war. There was no pressing need for motorization in the same way there was in Germany. In fact, most of these revolutionary changes made by the Volkswagen factory were inspired by U.S. factories. So there wasn't anything particularly revolutionary to uh, Americans about the car at the time. At least nothing impressive enough to make people forget that the car was still Hitler's car. Not a single dealer was interested in the Beetle. In fact, in one story, Ben Pond drove the car from New York to Massachusetts in a snowstorm to show the car to a dealer. But once the dealer saw the car in front of his dealership from the window, he didn't even go outside to take a look at the thing. Americans just did not want the Beetle. <laughs> Come out to look at it. <laughs> I ain't cold out there. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> uh, one customs official even laughed at Pond when he showed them the car and said, You want to sell that here? <laughs> Good luck, buddy. <laughs> I mean that sarcastically. <laughs> <laughs> the American people wanted big cars. They wanted comfy cars. That's us, baby. Yeah, big butts, big seats. You know give what I'm saying? Me, yeah, give me a freaking house on wheels, baby. In 1954, Heinrich hired Carl Hahn, a 27-year-old economist who was one eager beaver. Another animal, damn it. And uh, he couldn't wait for a challenge. He was quickly promoted to the Volkswagen Export Department. And the transfer? It couldn't have come at a better time. By the mid-1950s, America was beginning to take a second look at the car they had all laughed at those years earlier. While most American adults still viewed the car as Hitler's car, a new generation of drivers was coming of age, and they were much less connected to the storied past of the Beetle. Even then, 
Americans were not very open to the idea of importing cars. Servicing an import was just too inconvenient at the time. Domestic was cheaper and easier. So they decided to use the same tactics that won over Germany to win over the American market. Communities were given demonstrations showing how a Beetle can improve their work. They toured the car to every community, regardless of class. Service station and easy maintenance access was one of the founding tenets for Volkswagen, and it was obvious that following the same strategy in America was the simplest way to gain Americans' affection. Nordoff sent out his PR man, Will Vandekamp. With a name like Will Vandekamp, you can't not be a PR guy. Of course. Will Vandekamp. Well, that's a also a fish stick. Fish, <laughs> fish stick company. <laughs> do you like fish sticks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. What's the big problem? <laughs> Uh, anyway, the, a man who reportedly had the temper of a preacher and the zeal of a missionary, end quote. Uh, <laughs> That's like a quote from the past that like didn't translate. Like, Yeah, what the hell? He had the like, temper of a preacher and the zeal of a missionary. I do not encounter either of those people. <laughs> so just like an enthusiastic, angry preacher? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like those two are like- That just, travels. Yeah. Like a missionary is like a preacher <laughs> with a suitcase. Uh, he was in charge of ensuring that a VW was in every driveway in America. And you know what? He did a pretty good job of spreading the word. His enthusiasm was contagious. <laughs> From the sounds of it, he basically shouted, It's the Volkswagen way! <laughs> at dealerships until they understood that they had to put the customer first. Always. Throughout the 50s, Vandy Camp... He sounds like a like a Simpsons character. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Hey, Will Vandy Camp here. It's the Volkswagen way! <laughs> Tell me anything different than that. And the I, Volkswagen way! I don't know what that means. <laughs> you want a car or not? Is <laughs> how we do it! <laughs> anyway, throughout the 50s, Vandy Camp and his team drove across America on tour in a custom VW bus. They established VW dealerships everywhere they went. Like Johnny Appleseed yeah, for just, cars. Just throwing... Dude, I bet that was such a fun oh, summer. That'd be sick. Remember when we met the uh, Planters Mobile, Peanut Mobile people? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. They killed off Mr. <laughs> Peanut. Yeah, what what the is, hell that? is that? About, dude? The weirdest PR move in history. Well, they're probably going to bring him back to the Super Bowl, right? Like he's going to come back like Chrome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. I want to see the new Mr. Peanut. It's like. Welcome back, Peanut. And he's like the millennial peanut. Yeah, he's always on his phone. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have a monocle anymore. He's wearing like Google Glass or he's something. He's never going to be able to buy a house. Yeah. <laughs> he drinks his yogurt out of a tube. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that always your example for a millennial? <laughs> we don't got time for spoons, boomer. <laughs> You just squeeze my yogurt into my mouth. It's, it's called Gogurt, not Stopgurt. <laughs> He's the only mascot to like <laughs> endorse another product. <laughs> hey, Mr. Peanut here for Gogurt. I'd get off my phone if I wasn't on the T Mobile network, which is everywhere. <laughs> Can you hear me now, Grandpa? <laughs> <laughs> it must be hard to sell yogurt. Like it's the word is weird. The sounds it makes are weird. I think it stinks. <laughs> it stinks <laughs> selling yogurt. Peanut. It's like also two things that don't go together. Yeah. Peanuts and yogurt. <laughs> like violent shift in texture. <laughs> 
All right, Americans' sentiments. Sorry, American sentiment of Germany was beginning to change. As international travel became cheaper, people's views diversified. Imagine that. You yeah. go to another place and you're like, huh, yeah. it's not so different from where I live. Mm-hmm. That's like how that's how it was when I went to Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> I love Pittsburgh. Uh, anyway. Shouts out to Pittsburgh. Shouts out to Pittsburgh. <laughs> so many bridges. <laughs> uh, they started to realize that Germany was no longer the propaganda-fueled hellhole it was during the war, but a beautiful country being rebuilt. As negative sentiments began to break away, appreciation for the beautiful little beetle grew. In 1954, Time Magazine ran a cover story about Nordoff and his factory town. Immediately after, sales in the U.S. increased. It's called publicity. (laughs) (laughs) Of the 51,000 cars imported into the U.S. in 1955, 34,000 of them were Volkswagen Beetles. That's impressive. This is like... 10 years after yeah world war ii that is very impressive um compared to the big three companies in the u.s which sold millions of cars per year thirty-four thousand was a drop in the bucket by comparison but hey it was a start and that's really all the car needed i mean that's a double entendre it does need to be started yeah every car needs to be started (laughs) (laughs) we'll be right back with more of this story but first a word from our sponsors This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Uh, Carl Hahn contacted a relatively young agency from Manhattan, Doyle, Dane, and Bernbach, or DDB. Sounds like a wrestler. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Anyway, DDB, they were going to begin the first ad campaign for the Beatle in the United States. Advertising up to this point had a bit of a status problem. Ads would directly target certain desirable statuses and use that status to help drive sales. Do you want your wife to love you? Yeah. Buy this car. Okay. You want to sleep with a sexy flight stewardess? Yeah. Fly this plane. Ooh. Basically, advertisements treated it as if you couldn't have A without B. What struck Carl Hahn the most about DDB was the honesty in their ads. They didn't tell tall tales or promise you a great fortune when you bought this product. Instead, they simply tried to sell you a car. Carl Hahn loved what he saw and offered the company $600,000 to create an advertising campaign for little beetle in the ad world though 600k is basically nothing i think that's something we should remind the listener these car companies spend billions of dollars on ads every year it's insane anyway uh other companies are spending upwards of 30 million on their advertisements uh but it was enough to get the ball rolling for volkswagen vw flew their marketing team to wolfsburg to tour the plant team members who were hesitant about the car at first recalled returning to New York after the trip with a new appreciation for the car. After a large debate, it was settled that the standard three-column layout would be used for their advertisement. Of course, this was seen as a creatively inferior form of advertising, but that was DDB's wheelhouse. They were good at taking something common and altering it just enough to make it feel new. In the columns, the VW logo was awkwardly set in the middle of the text. It was weird, and it was messy compared to the norm. But that was just what they needed. The first VW ad had a headline that read, 
is Volkswagen contemplating a change? It sounds like a wheelhouse title. Yeah, <laughs> it does. <laughs> the ad was designed to poke fun at the fact that from the outside, a Volkswagen never really changes. And to everyone's surprise, the ad was a huge hit, and it was praised for its directness and honesty. In 1959, there was one book that was sweeping across the nation that could be found in every bookstore. It was the best-selling self-help book titled The Magic of Thinking Big. In a typical car ad, the car was always stretched to be made as large and as wide as possible. But DDB's next ad proved to be a little different. The headline had one simple phrase, think small. The picture of the car in the ad was barely visible. The creators wanted to break the rules, and they were worried that this ad would break too many rules. Little did they know, they had just created what would be widely regarded as the greatest ad of all time and would change the Madison Square advertising forever. I don't know. The greatest ad ever was when they killed off Mr. Peanut, in my mind. <laughs> yeah. When the ad hit the pages of Life magazine in February of 1960, the ad was an instant hit. At the time, the public was primarily, primarily made up of young people, and young people embraced the campaign. DDB ads often took what was widely considered the worst traits of the car and turned them into strengths. Uh, one of my personal favorites is the It's Ugly But It Gets You There ad from 1969, which has no other text. Um other than the uh, Volkswagen logo and features a picture of the lunar lander. It is ugly, but it does get you there. Get it? It's yeah. Pretty cool. After the release of these ads, VW sales skyrocketed. Sales increased to as high as 500,000 cars sold in a single season. That's spring. <laughs> <laughs> in 1968, the Beetle would become the best-selling car in any country. And then five years later, in 1973, it would become the best-selling car of all time, trumping the 15 million Ford Model Ts and selling an amazing 20 million cars. What do you think the equivalent of, like, someone in 1969 driving a Volkswagen Beetle to Woodstock is nowadays? Um, driving a Prius C to four by four. <laughs> so, Christina? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. In 1968, Nordoff was pressured into naming a successor. He didn't want to retire, but he was nearly 70 years old and had been giving 10-hour days for almost seven days a week for this company for the past 20 years. Uh, if he'd had it any other way, he would have died in his position. Yeah. Um, unfortunately <laughs> for him, he ultimately would. Oh, God. It's kind of <laughs> weird to say that he, he wanted to die working, and then he did die working. <laughs> Nordoff took the forced retirement about as personally as one could take it and decided to avoid the issue altogether and fly off to a retreat in France. Hey, you can't fire me if I'm not here, right? Unfortunately, on his flight back, he collapsed and died a few weeks later in the hospital, unfortunately. His wife of 38 years and best friend of nearly 50 uh, was with him the entire time, even drinking champagne together hours before his death. His funeral was held in one of the giant factory halls at Wolfsburg, and his body was transported to his grave in a specially built VW bus. Oh, uh, wow. that's how I want to go. In the Wienermobile? In the <laughs> <laughs> I want to be shot out of a cannon. <laughs> Best we ocean. can do is shoot you out to the back of the Wienermobile. <laughs> Oh, man. We know the Wienermobile guy. We don't know a Canon guy. <laughs> We're not called Canon Media. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson had his ashes shot out of uh, the Gonzo Fist Canon, 
and Colorado into space. Whoa. That's so like a little capsule. And Johnny Depp like pressed the button or something. Whoa. My old roommate was his assistant. Really? Yeah. When he died. Yeah. Not long after Nordoff's death was one of the most famous events in U.S. history. On August 15th, 1969, hundreds of thousands of young people flocked to Max Yasker's dairy farm in Bethlehem, New York, to attend the very first Woodstock concert. Pictures of Woodstock show the land dotted with VW Beetles and buses. The Beetle had not only been the first car to motorize many European populations, but also the first car to motorize the American youth. Dude, that Yasker dude was really cool. Yeah? Yeah, I watched the Woodstock documentary on Netflix, and he was, like, a pretty conservative dude that just, like, ran this farm up in upstate New York. And then, just, like, with open arms, let all these hippies destroy his property. (laughs) And they put him on stage, and he was like, I'm so, like, I... He basically like that festival changed his view on hippies and he was like, you guys are full of love and I love you and I'm glad you're here. That's awesome. That's yeah. cool. A lot different from Woodstock 99. <laughs> no, Woodstock 99 when Fred Durst. The beginning of the end of the American <laughs> experiment. Fred Durst beckoned his fans to light porta potties on fire. <laughs> Just like that like 90s suburban <clears throat> white male angst is so... It's still, I mean, it's still going. But I mean, yeah, it just like has just grown exponentially. Yeah. Okay. So the VW Beetle quickly became the cultural icon, powering one of the most significant counterculture movements to date. During the hippie movement, driving a small foreign car was considered a form of protest. People were protesting the inefficient gas guzzlers that plagued our nation's highways at the time. But specifically, the movement fell in love with the Beetle's older brother, the VW Microbus. As James May describes in his series, The Car of the People, quote, it was in California where this fascist fugitive found its new loved-up identity. That's cool, man. I'd love to meet James May. Yeah, he'd be cool to hang out with. America never truly felt the huge impact that the Beatle had on society. Sure, it was a symbol for anti-war sentiments. Sure, it's the only car to have its own Disney movie franchise about itself. I did see... What about Cars? Lightning McQueen. Ever heard of them? <laughs> okay, but America never truly felt the impact of the Beetle the same way it was felt in Europe. We never got to experience what it was like to view the Beetle as the prodigal son of motor transportation. The final Porsche-designed Beetle sold in America was in 1979, but that wasn't the end of the Beetle. In fact, a country that truly felt the impact of the people's car was none other than our neighbor to the south, Mexico. Few countries felt such an intense impact from the Beetle. In 1964, the first Volkswagen factory was open in Mexico, and the people's car entered the market. As a testament to the country's love for the Beetle, the very last Porsche-designed Type 1 Beetle rolled off the assembly line in Mexico on July 30th, 2003. Jeez. Yeah. It was painted Aquarius Blue, although you couldn't really tell because of all the flowers placed on its hood that day. It was Beetle number 21,529,464 at least of the original design. People in Mexico were devastated to see a car that had revolutionized their lives so much finally go, and an entire ad campaign was created just to wish the car farewell. But, you know, at that time, they had 
the PT Cruiser was just starting production. <laughs> yeah, so they and, had a new people's hero. Yeah, out. you go down to Mexico, you see so many PT Cruisers like all over. Even in Ensenada, I saw like Baja versions with oh, like fat sick. tires. Oh, I want oh. one so bad. <laughs> That'd be sick. Of course, the Beetle wasn't actually dead. It was in the 1990s that helped give new life to the missing Beetle. After all, the 90s were somewhat similar to the 60s, 60s in their ideologies. People still love the car. And in the years since it went off the market, the Beatles' reputation had only grown. In 1997, Wolfsburg announced that they would begin production of the new Beetle. The biggest difference, other than the updated styling and you know better emissions and safety and pretty much everything else, was the engine's location. It was in the front now. And VW addressed that in their first ad that read, quote, The engine's in the front, but its heart is in the same place. Oh, yeah, that's really good. The new Beetle remained on the U.S. market from 1997 through 2010 and sold a total of 477,347 cars. Uh, one of my personal favorites of this generation Beetle was the Malibu Barbie version. Yeah, you own like six of them. Yeah, I'm a big collector. <laughs> There's also the um, new Beetle RSI, which had the VR6 yeah. really? in it, and it was all-wheel drive. It had the uh, four-motion they made that? Yeah, they... there's there's 250 of them. Whoa. Yeah, I remember that car from like one of the Gran Turismo games, and it's always been in the back of my mind as like, if I'm going to buy a Beetle, it's going to be that one. <laughs> was yeah. it black with like gold racing stripes? Uh, I remember it as like silver. Okay. Yeah, but it's so sick. And it's got like 20 spoke wheels too with like a really thin tire. After the new Beetle, VW released a more updated version now just called the Beetle. The Beetle shared the same platform as the Jetta, and was a radical redesign from the previous generation as an attempt to try and recapture some of the original Beetle's charm. It actually does look very much like the original Beetle. Mm -hmm. I didn't know there were hatchbacks either. Mm -hmm. uh, one of our editors, Bridget, huge Volkswagen fan, she has one, and I was amazed when I saw it was a hatch. And that's my story. Amazed, <laughs> Nolan? I was amazed. I was. I didn't know. I didn't know it was a hatch. I didn't know it was a hatch. Uh, if you guys are listening to this um, streaming... Me and Joe are looking knowingly at each other. Like, we know this we're guy. We're squinting our eyes and we're looking at each other. Amazed. All right, I was surprised. <laughs> okay, okay, that's surprised. more like it. All right. In <laughs> September of 2018. Let's uh, hold back on the hyperbole. All yeah, right, dude, sorry. we're almost done. Let's just Is it hyperbole? pump the brakes. Hyperbole. In September of 2018, Volkswagen announced that the Beetle would cease production in July of 2019. And true to their word... The final third-gen Beetle finished production on the 9th of July, 2019. <laughs> oh, they weren't They were not us. Honestly, um, you know, I think the Beetle is probably bound to return at mm -hmm. some point, maybe. Do you think it's going to keep going? Like how Xbox is like, well, this is the 360, so this is the one, and then the Xbox oh, one. Like they're yeah. going to keep like, this is the new Beetle 360. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my buddy Chris in high school, uh, he had a lot of hand-me-down, like his mom just gave him her old stuff. So like his cell phone was like a pink razor phone. And then his car in high school was like a light blue new beetle. Mom <laughs> <laughs> keeps giving me girl stuff. My boss at Dairy Queen when I was 16, uh, drove a yellow one with like flower wheels. Oh uh, yeah. And she was super racist. So <laughs> oh I don't know what that says about <laughs> a lot of, yeah, that's some conflict there. Yeah. Uh, the Volkswagen Beetle story, um, I think it's complicated, right? Mm -hmm. The car was designed to be a tool, and realistically, it has always served that purpose perfectly. I feel like it's represented a lot of things over the years. Like, it's not only a tool, it was currency at one point. 
It was a form of protest. Uh, just been a, like its image has changed so much over the years, but it somehow remained the same car. Yeah. Which is crazy. Safe to say, I don't think any other car will have the same impact that the Beetle did for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening to the Passcast podcast. If you don't know already, go follow us on YouTube. We got a channel that's uh, full of fun, cool educational car videos. Uh, It's Donut Media. And then we also have a podcast channel, completely dedicated podcast called Donut Podcasts. Mm Uh, follow Donut on the Twitter and the Instagrams at Donut Media on both of those. Follow Nolan at Nolan J Sykes Thank on both you. of those. Follow me at James Pumphrey on both of those. Follow Joe at Dark underscore Webinar. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, I love you. Yeah. Uh, be kind. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.